right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, I want to start off with that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, Snoopy is kind of a jerk. I, I hadn't watched that in a long time, and I was like, that was not very nice. Um, two, if you're paying attention, we've kind of read the same passage over and over again through a multitude of ways, and um, I think that that's like, a, you know, if there's any kind of like after-school Christmas special that we're familiar with, whether we're churchgoers or not, it's probably the Peanuts Christmas special, and it ends that way. And um, I even heard some of you as uh, it was that the passage that we just read was being read again, kind of be like, oh, you know, there's like warm fuzzies uh, when we see Linus. Is that who it is? Is it Linus? Yes, okay. Uh, drop his security blanket and proclaim this. And there's kind of like memories that flood back from our childhoods, like sitting on our grandpa's knee and being bounced up and down. And um, I think that that's not the way we just kind of feel about that scene that we just watched. I think it's the way that we feel about the scene that we just read uh, in the text uh, that, we just, that we just had read to us. Um, it's pretty famous. It's pretty well known. And it's the type of passage that if you've been at church at Christmas any time in your life. You've probably heard read or sung or talked about. And I think we really approach it with kind of these heavily um, nostalgic, um, warm feelings. And I guess here's the thing. I'm not trying to be like anti-peanuts here. I do have a a heart and a soul. Um, But I I just don't know if that's the way we're supposed to feel about this scene that we just read. Um, I, I think it's actually when you read it and you kind of understand it, it happened to real people in real history. Um, What you understand is this scene is unbelievably bizarre. Um, It's sort of comforting, but it's also very frightening. Um, And it's pretty scandalous, if you kind of understand it, in terms of how it all went down, uh, when it went down in history. It happened to real men in real history, and I just think that's really imperative to understand. In fact, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's the scholar and theologian who's been the inspiration for much of this series, um, he, when he was talking about the major theme of this, of this, uh, this, this passage, which is uh, redemption, uh, Bonhoeffer, he likened it less to like the warm fuzzies you feel when you take that first sip of peppermint hot chocolate on a cold December morning. Um, it, it, less like that and more, he said, is actually more like a disaster story. Um, and, and here's exactly what he writes. Um, Bonhoeffer writes, um, he says, you know what a mind disaster is? He says, in recent weeks, we have had to read about one in the newspapers. He says, it's the moment when even the most courageous miner has dreaded his whole life long is here. It is no use running into the walls. The silence all around him remains. The way out for him is blocked. He knows the people up there are working feverishly to reach the miners who are buried alive. Perhaps someone will be rescued. But here in the last shaft, an agonizing period of waiting and dying is all that remains. But suddenly, a noise that sounds like tapping and breaking in the rock can be heard. Unexpectedly, voices cry out, Where are you? Help is on the way. Then the disheartened miner picks himself up. His heart leaps. He shouts, Here I am. Come on through and help me. I'll hold out until you come. Just come soon. A final, desperate hammer blow to his ear. Now the rescue is near. Just one more step and he is free. We have spoken of Advent itself. That is how it is with the coming of Christ. Look up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And I love that. I really appreciate that. I mean, I understand, like, a lot of times we, we've said in this series, like, the goal as we think about Christmas and Advent is that we would not just kind of be, um, I don't know, just sort of enjoy it, enjoy, like, the vague, warm, feel-good feelings of 
Christmas and we wouldn't just endure it, um, but we would experience it. We would experience the degree that we would want to take a more realistic approach to what's actually happening in this scene to kind of cut through the nostalgia, to cut through the tradition, to cut through the warm fuzzies because what we need is a realistic approach so this trickles into the real aspects of our life where we need it the most. And that's what I appreciate about Bonhoeffer's understanding of redemption in this scene. It's very, very realistic. Um, You probably are not going to see that scene on an afternoon Christmas special that would um, traumatize young children. It would. But like we need that sort of realistic understanding of what's actually happening in a scene like this one. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a very realistic approach. It's very bizarre in terms of what happens here. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it openly and honestly, and we're going to walk through it. And we're just going to ask kind of the three most obvious questions that would arise as you're reading this, that you would just be like, that does not make sense in terms of why this would happen. And I think what you're going to see is this very bizarre scene is actually more beautiful than we could ever kind of uh, have imagined, even though we're very familiar with it. It's familiar, but it's very unfamiliar. And so let's do that. Let's walk through um, the story that we just read. We'll ask these three questions. And here's the first question I want us to ask. Um, If you were reading this, especially starting in verse 8, the first thing that would jump out to you is you would just ask the question of why shepherds? You would read this and you would just be like, PT kind of referenced it, but like why shepherds? So look at verse 8. I'll I'll kind of explain. Um, Verse 8. And in the same region, uh, we just saw that was in the region of Bethlehem, which should be f- familiar for any of you who are with us in the fall. That's where the book of Ruth uh, takes place as well. So in this region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, it, it's kind of interesting. God appears, and they're afraid. Like, why is it that they're afraid? Well, there's a couple reasons that they're afraid. I mean, the first is, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks in this series, um, that when God walks into the room, when, when his glory is made known, when who he really is is expressed, even in the smallest way like you're seeing in this scene, there's such a radical disparity between who he is and who we are, that he is holy and he is good and he is all-powerful, and we are the opposite of those things. There's such a weightiness to his glory that it produces tremendous fear because we're finally seeing God for who he really is. So this is just the, the basic human response that anybody would have. So that's why they're afraid. But the biggest reason they're probably afraid is because they are shepherds. These guys are shepherds. And shepherds were not, I don't know, I feel like shepherds are the type of profession that a lot of times we really romanticize a lot. I don't know if you're like this, but when I think about a shepherd before I did any studying, I think what I pictured in my mind was like almost like a park ranger, like a park ranger who works up at Estes and he like wears a down jacket and he's got a sweet beard and he sits outside and he marvels at the stars and he looks at the wildlife and he kind of journals and writes his feelings and writes out poems. And I'm like, how do I get a job like that? You know, like I would love to work that job. How do I get that? Um, But that's not really an accurate understanding of the way shepherds functioned in culture when this was written. Um, You know how, I don't know, you know know how like you meet somebody at a party and what's always like the first or second question you ask? Like, well, what is it that you do? And then instantly in that moment where you hear what that person does, you, you either respect that person more or less. Is that, I mean, let's just be honest, right? We, we all have that. Um, in fact, I was reading a Gallup poll this week. Um, if you are a nurse, a pharmacist, or a teacher, you tend to be respected the most in those scenes. Um, so I know we have a lot of nurses and teachers. Congratulations. Um, you've chosen wisely. Um, and if you are a used car salesman, um, what was the other? There was, 
used car salesman, this isn't even like pertinent of what I'm talking about, but now I'm just going to be thinking about what it is the entire time. Um, I can't find it. Used car salesman, I, uh, there was a second one, and then the third one was a member of Congress. Um, if you're one of those three things, one of them, which I'm not sure what it is, all of you are going to be like, is it me? Is it like what I do? Um, <laughs> nah, you guys are all nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, you are trusted the least when you, somebody hears that you do that at a party. Now, um, here's what's interesting. If, if you kind of went back to the first century Bethlehem and you told somebody at a party that you were a shepherd, you would be at the very bottom of the trustworthy spectrum. And it's kind of weird because, like, you read the Old Testament and all these great men of God are shepherds. But by this time, um, you know, it, it was kind of a profession that, it, it was a tough profession. I mean, you have to think, like, you're working 24-7. The sheep aren't like, take a break. You know, like, you've earned it. Take two weeks. Go, like, no, you got to be with them 24-7 to make sure they're not getting killed and they're taken care of and they're fed. That means you can't uh, really obey a large uh, number of the Old Testament law. You can't go to the temple. It also meant that, you know, these guys are living, like, highly nomadic lifestyles, and so they're kind of going all over the fields, and uh, they kind of had a reputation of almost being like gypsies. They would kind of take things as they would go for the sake of their own survival. A lot of times there were land disputes in terms of, like, how much land was theirs and how many sheep. Like, how did that sheep get there? That was my sheep. Like, I mean, you just imagine... The these conversations happening over and over and over again. And so here's the point, is that a shepherd was not the type of person um, that if God shows up, if you're a shepherd and God shows up, and you in your profession are known for kind of being not a good guy, when God shows up, he's not showing up for good reasons. And so you would be very, very afraid. Now, here's the question we should ask them. Um, well, why does the angel appear to shepherds? I think, I think we can ask that question maybe in a couple ways. Hey, one, we ask the question of like, why does Luke even include this detail? I mean, is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? And uh, here, here, here's kind of, I don't know, maybe this seems kind of obvious, but here's the reason that Luke tells us that God appears to shepherds. You ready for this? Because it happens. Did I blow your mind? Now, here's why I say that. I, I know that would seem like kind of obvious, and, but, here, but here's kind of what Here's kind of what I'm working against, is that for some of you in this room, and uh, probably for all of us in this room, we know somebody who approaches the Bible and the stories in the Bible is kind of nothing more than a collection of folktales that are kind of wrapped together in this grand conspiracy, almost to trick people into believing in God and Jesus and the church. And uh, here's the thing, is that, they, I mean, shepherds, not only were they disrespected, I mean, they were so um, mistrusted, their testimony wasn't even allowed to be submitted in a court of law in this day. Now, here's the thing, is if you're Luke, and you're trying to be a conspirator, and you include shepherds as the primary witnesses and the first witnesses to the birth of the Son of God, like, you're a terrible conspirator. Like, you're just really bad at what you're trying to do, and so you just got to be plain out, plain out dumb. So here's kind of the thing, is either Luke is a complete idiot, or he's just telling us what really happened. And I think the most ra- logical and rational explanation for what's going on here, why he would include this detail, is because that's it's the way that God chose to work. It happened to real people in real history. Now, the, the next question then after that you should be asking is like, well, if it really happened, why did God choose shepherds? Like, why do you pick shepherds to be the first ones that you herald the, um, the, the birth, that you testify to the truth, that God has entered the world, he's going to save the world? Like, why do you have these guys be the first witnesses to this, um, even though you can't be a witness in a court of law in that day? Like, does this communication plan not extend far out enough that he, like, couldn't get a king? 
or he like couldn't get a religious ruler, or he couldn't get the type of you know, judge who's highly respected in the culture. Well, here's what I think is happening. I, I think the reason that God chooses shepherds is because he's making a startling pro- proclamation on the front end to say that his salvation that is going to come through his son is for the lowly, is for the broken, is for the outcast, is for men and women like shepherds who have a very astute awareness that they are broken, fallen, sinful people. The entire culture was telling them that every single day. And here's why I think this is such good news. It's because, you know, again, I think there's kind of this misunderstanding of Christianity that the heart of Christianity is that there's a God, um, we're not him, and in order to kind of get picked on God's team, you have to be good enough, you maybe have to be intelligent enough, you might have to be uh, socially conscious enough, you might have to be tolerant enough, you might have to be devout enough, you might have to be religious enough, you might have to do kind of these list of things and a bunch of rules. And kind of the, the understanding of one day going to heaven is kind of like you getting picked for God's middle school dodgeball team. You know, it's like if you can be strong enough, good enough, devout enough, tolerant enough, boom, you're picked, you're on the team, and rejoice. Well, what you're seeing in a scene like this, when God chooses the worst of the worst to receive the message of salvation, is he is flipping that sort of, I mean, it's kind of a common sense, but it's a very popular understanding of salvation on its head. And what God is declaring is that his salvation is not for those who are good enough, but for those who can confess they're not good enough. Like, that's essentially the heart of the Christian faith. For anybody who kind of understands it as you have to be good enough for God or you have to do this list of things to be good enough for God, you've totally misunderstood what makes Christianity unlike any other religion in the world. The heart of the gospel, the heart of what is being proclaimed here to shepherds, the worst of the worst, is not be good enough. It's be aware that you're not good enough. It's the exact opposite. And that's really great news because I think very few of us can be good enough for God. In fact, we've talked about this. None of us can be. None of us can be good enough for God. But you know what's really great news? Is all of us can be bad enough for God. Like, we're all bad enough for God. We all qualify. Like, if a shepherd can qualify, you can definitely qualify. Like, we can all qualify to be bad enough for God. But here's the catch. As you have to be humble enough, you have to be self-aware enough to confess that you're bad enough. Like, that's what the shepherds had over everybody else. I mean, you go to a shepherd, and it's like, you need a savior? And they're like, man, you don't know the half of it. Like, you don't know what I do. Like, you, don't, like, you just have a glimpse into how bad I am. I'm a terrible person. Like, salvation? Yes, please, I'll receive it. Sign me up. But to the rich, but to the influential, but to the educated, but to the uber-tolerant, but to the uber-devout, to the uber-religious, you go to somebody and say, you are totally depraved and jacked up and sinful, and you don't just need moral improvement. You don't need just a good moral example. You need the salvation of your soul. And what happens? The educated start creating all sorts of intellectual theories. They're like, oh, if you really understood the Greek, you would understand it doesn't really mean that. It means something very different than that. to the hyper-devout and religious and obedient, you know, well, yeah, I, mean, I understand some people need a savior, but you don't understand, like, how good of a person I am. Yeah, like, somebody like a shepherd, somebody like a murderer, somebody like a sex offender, like, that person needs a savior, but you don't understand, like, I, I've kept the rules my entire life. Don't you see, the one thing that will keep you away from God is not your sin, because there was nobody more sinful than shepherds in this culture. The one thing that will keep you away from God is your self-righteousness, is your unwillingness to confess that you're a sinner. 
and to confess that you were in desperate need of a Savior. And it's such great news because I feel like all the time, like weekly, I'm having conversations with people whose lives are falling apart and your marriage is falling apart and your kids are crazy and your job didn't go exactly the way you wanted to and you did something and you screwed up big time and you never thought you were capable of doing something that bad. And I feel like all the time, like I'm having conversations where I'm like, I'm so excited for you. Like, I'm so excited for you because you're finally coming to a place where you're recognizing you're not as good as your mommy always told you. That you're not as disciplined as you always thought you were. That you don't have the willpower to save yourself. And the reason I'm excited for you is not because your life is falling apart, because those are the exact moments where you finally can confess you're not strong enough to have a healthy marriage on your own. You're not strong enough to raise good kids on your own. You're not... Whatever it might be, where you can finally come to the end of yourself and lay down your self-righteousness and see you for who you really are and to confess your desperate need for a Savior. It's when we're most broken and confessing our greatest need and we can come to the end of ourselves that God steps in and he does his greatest work. And that's why a scene like this one is such good news because it's just reaffirming that. God proclaims his message of salvation to the shepherds and these are the guys we can completely resonate with. And so it's really good news to those of us who see ourselves as broken. It's tremendously frightening to those of us who never see ourselves as bad as a guy like this. Scandalous. Now, it goes on from there, and it brings up another question. You thought the scene was weird. It's going to get even weirder. Um, And here's the next question is why singing? Okay, I'm going to talk about this, but this is even weirder to me than shepherds. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Uh, which I imagine is really good news for these shepherds because they're like, we're going to die. And the angels are like, fear not. And they're like, we're not going to die. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, For behold, I bring you good news, um, which is interesting. Actually, where it says, I bring you good news, in the original language in the Greek, that's actually a single word. It's just like, and basically, if you translate it literally, it'd be like, don't worry, you guys, I'm preaching you the gospel. Woo, like, thank you, Jesus. Um, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, let me just make a quick observation there. We're going to come back to this. Notice in verse 11 how Jesus, even in his infancy, is referred to as being a Savior. See, from the very beginning, he has a very specific mission for his life. So you see that in verse 11. We'll talk about that. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you look at the very end of verse 13, the very last word is a word that says saying. Um, What scholars believe is, yes, like in the original language, it is the word saying. But what scholars kind of everybody believes is the angels aren't just saying this. They're actually singing this. It's kind of the way that the the passage is told, uh, particularly when you see like what follows next is is pretty much poetry. Um, The the assumption is that it's sung. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous 19th century uh, pastor, he was in London, uh, he, he said this about this scene. He said, notice how well, he's talking about the angels here, they told the story. And surely you will love them, not with the stammering tongue of one who tells a tale in which he has no interest, nor even with the feigned interest of a man that would move the passions of others when he feels no emotion himself, but with joy and gladness, such as angels can only know. They sang the story out, but they could not stop to tell it in heavy prose. They sang 
glory to God on high and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I think they sang it with gladness in their eyes, with their hearts burning with love and with breasts as full of joy as if the good news to man had been good news to themselves. So they sang. Now, here's what's weird about that to me. Um, This is probably one of the 10 most important moments in all of human history, I would assume. Um, And we just don't do this in important moments today. Right? Like, think about the most important moments in your life. Think about, like, whether you signed a mortgage, um, whether you bought a car, uh, when you picked, if you went to college, what college you chose to go to. Was there any singing involved? Like, did you go to sign, like, we bought a Subaru. When I went in there, nobody was like, will you take this Subaru? And I was like, I will. And I'll change the oil every day. No, like, we didn't do that. We didn't do that at all. Like, that would be really weird, right? They would be like, I don't think you're qualified for this loan. Get out. Um, if, if that had happened. And, and so when you think about this, um, in the moments that matter the most in our lives, like, there's no singing involved. There's silence. There's seriousness. It's like, do you understand the terms? Um, that's, that's kind of the way that those scenes go. Now, here's what's really interesting. You know what I learned this week is that if you actually study history, both the history inside the Bible and uh, the, the history that's outside the Bible as well, what you'll find is that in the moments that mattered the most historically, singing was involved, like peace treaties, um, covenants, uh, I mean, you see this in, in the Old Testament. God delivers, God saves, God provides. And all of a sudden, there's a song there to kind of commemorate the occasion. Now, it's curious because for us, I think as modern people, like we see human beings as almost nothing more than kind of computers with information that needs to be inputted into it. But the ancient understanding of humanity that I think is actually far more robust and far healthier and actually far much more biblical uh, as well saw us as more than just kind of thinking beings but actually feeling beings as well. That we didn't just have minds, but we had spirits and we had souls and we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And it means there are moments that are so beautiful that stir our souls deeply that mere prose fails. And because we are feeling this deep, deep emotion, something higher, something more poetic, something more, more beautiful, has to be used to commun- communicate the magnitude of the moment. It's interesting because I think you still see glimpses of this today. Like, I think, you know, I told you last week, I went to the University of South Carolina, big football school, and whenever we score a touchdown, it didn't happen very often, but when it happens, 80,000 people, like, we didn't know each other at all, but 80,000 people. The band started up, and we all started singing the exact same song. I can still sing it today, even though I haven't been to a game for almost a decade. Like, what is happening in that moment? It's like something so significant has transpired, which, I mean, again, when you think about kind of the insignificance of a college football game, like, it's kind of, I mean, it's silly that we do this, but it's like something is so significant that it's not enough to just turn to your friend and be like, we scored a touchdown. Isn't that fantastic that we scored a touchdown? High five, touchdown. No, like, like, let's give a cheer. Carolina is here. And, you know, I could do the rest if you wanted to. Um, I won't. But, I mean, it was just like something is so significant about that moment that, that our souls are being stirred. I, I feel like I see this even in our daughter. Like, she's 10 months old, and uh, we kind of have a tradition now where I get her up, I give her breakfast, and um, I always put on music. 
And we listen to Sam Cooke a lot, the godfather of soul. So I don't know if you listen to him, but we listen, you know, like, man, like on Monday, I'm like, got my back to her. Sam Cooke's Let the Good Times Roll is playing on the speakers, and I'm getting her bananas ready. And I turn around, and Hannah, like, she can't even talk yet. She's like this. She's going like this. Like, I'm not, I'm not joking. Like, that's not exaggerating. She dances just like this. And it just hit me, like, wow, like, even, even in our infancy, before we can even communicate, there's something about the power of music that stirs our souls, to, that, like, moves us, even in our infancy. And let me just be super practical here with this. Like, I mean, why do the angels sing? The angels sang because the truth of what they were proclaiming was so beautiful. It's like Spurgeon said, it's like mere prose would not do. And let me just make kind of a simple application point here. This is why we sing at church, Okay. Now, let me be transparent with you. Singing at church is the most unnatural part of this whole thing for me. I remember when I first started going to church, which I didn't really start going to church very frequently until I was 18 years old. And I walked in, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And it started with singing, and I was like, when can we get this over with? I think most men are like that. I think most men, they're not like, hey, what was the favorite part of the evening? It's like, oh, and we stood up and sang together. Like, I wish we'd held hands, too. No, I remember I would go into that, and I was like, can we get this over with? Like, I, I just want to get to the information. I, I know somebody preaches and kind of helps me understand about Jesus and who he is. And like, let's just get to that. Can we get to that as quickly as possible and talk? I'd prefer for it to be longer. Uh, and then we can go home. But then all of a sudden he would finish and more music would happen. And I was like, oh my gosh, like make it stop. Now, probably many of you feel this way, especially you men feel this way as well. But here's what I realized in my own life. In my own life, what I realized is I had too small an understanding of who I was as a human being. I mean, I think for most of my life, uh, I thought of myself as nothing more than a computer who needs nothing more than the input of information about who God is, maybe, if I'm trying to understand something about the Christian faith. And that is too small an understanding of the doctrine of humanity. We are not mere thinking beings, but we feel, we emote, we, we, we have something deep inside us that is hard to measure with the scientific method, but we feel it. We see it in one another. And there are truths about who God is that are so spectacular that mere prose, like what I'm doing right now, fails to really capture it. No matter how articulate I could ever be. There are truths that are so beautiful, they have to be sung. And let me just be honest with you. Like, I really like singing now. I'm not good at singing. You just heard I'm not good at singing. I don't like people hearing me sing, so it was a major kind of step out of my comfort zone to sing for seven seconds for you guys tonight. Um, But I love it. I really, really do love it uh, because like, it helps me understand the fullness that I am, that I am not a mere computer, that I was fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. And you were too. And so for those of you who don't enjoy singing, enjoy singing. It's really beautiful. Even the angels sing. And so let's move on. Third, I think this is the weirdest part of the entire passage. Why peace? So it's not enough just that the angels sang, uh, but what was it that the angels sang? And look at what they sang. We just read this again. Verse 14, they sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he, talking about God, is pleased. Now here's what's weird about this. Because I feel like a lot of times, um, I don't know, this is in Christmas carols and we sing this and you, know, you see this on Christmas uh, cards that people send to one another. Um, this is a little bit startling because the angels are coming and they are offering a peace treaty. 
Now, let me ask you a question. What is assumed at the root of a peace treaty being offered? War, right? Like, if two people are friends, like if two nations get together for a peace treaty, it's probably because those two nations were at war with one another. And so it's kind of a little bit weird for me to think about, like, hey, merry ending of the war that we're, like, putting on our Christmas carols that we send to great-grandma. But think critically about this in terms of the complexity of, of what that means when you think about, I don't know, I just feel like peace, like, again, we, we just kind of wussify peace. And we make it, like, so absolutely anemic in terms of what it actually means, like, God is coming and he is offering peace to the worst of the worst of humanity. And I hope this makes sense for you. That's the reason why we spent the last two weeks in the Old Testament to give you like the full story context of what's leading up to this. Because what did we see for the last couple of weeks? That man and God are not living in peacetime. They are living in wartime. That at the root of the first sin, this is what we saw at the beginning of this series, at the beginning of the first sin, the problem with it was not so much what was done. It's who we were wronged. And at the root of every single sin is a rejection of the authority of who God is and what role that he is meant to play over and in our lives. Every act of sin is cosmic treason. It is an attempt to usurp the throne and to take it from the God who rightly deserves to fill it. And God and this long war that is waged between us and him is sending angels, which means messengers, and says, hey, good news, the war is over. God has come to offer you peace. Now, I think it's even messier than that. I, I think for a couple reasons. I think when you think critically about peace, when you think historically about what peace actually means, and you don't just sing it, but like, what does it actually mean? I think there are a couple really... Um, I don't know if I want to say painful, messy aspects to peace. And here they are. You ready? The first is this. As a declaration of peace, it means an absorbing of, of, an absorbing of offenses by the victor. A declaration of peace means an absorbing of offenses by the victor. So think about this. Two nations wage war against one another, and one is the clear victor. In the end, for true reconciliation to take place and for the, you know, for the common good, uh, essentially the winner cannot go to the loser and say, you have to repay for every single little thing that you've done wrong. There's some element of absorbing those wrongs in the name of reconciliation. So you think about the end of World War II, for example, USA wins, Germany loses. I mean, there's some pain back, but a lot of it's like, you can't pay us back. You can't repay back taking millions of lives. And yet, what we're going to do for the sake of reconciliation is we are going to absorb those wrongs. We're going to take them. We're not going to make you pay them back for the sake of peace. What's happening in this scene in a far more profound and beautiful and really lopsided way is God is looking at man and he's saying, I'm not going to make you pay back for every single little thing that you, wrong that you have done against me. You can't earn it back. I mean, it, after all, like, how is it that you repay back sin against a holy God who needs nothing from us? And he's not just saying that. But again, remember when I pointed out, I think it was in verse 11, that Jesus in his infancy is referred to as Savior. 
It's not just that God is going to absorb these wrongs. It's not that he's just going to be like, well, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. They are a big deal. But what he's proclaiming is, is he's not just going to absorb those wrongs. He's going to place those wrongs on Jesus. Like that's his mission from the very beginning is to not just be a moral example or a good moral teacher. He is going to be a savior. And at the root of his salvation is him taking on our wrongs, of him dying for our sin because that is the punishment that it deserves. And then he resurrects three days later, proclaiming that death is not the final word. He, rece- he gives victory over the grave itself. He's demonstrating how powerful of a Savior he is. And so it's beautiful, but it's messy as well. I mean, you think about how hard that would be in our own lives, to look at somebody who's wronged us and to take those wrongs on ourselves. But that's at the root of any true forgiveness. In the name of reconciliation, is an absorbing of wrongs and saying, for the sake of reconciliation, I'm not going to make you pay back. What God is declaring here is that in the name of reconciliation, I'm going to make Jesus pay it back. That he is strong enough to be victorious over what it is that we've done. Now, not only that, there's a second part that's really messy as well. Not only that, in terms of an absorbing of wrong or absorbing of offenses by the victor, but two, a declaration of peace also means a willingness to surrender by the loser. There's a willingness to surrender. In fact, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he put this better than I ever could. What, what he said was that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Now, this seems obvious, right? <clears throat> it seems like in any war, there's a clear winner, there's a clear loser, if there is a clear winner and a clear loser. The loser admits it, okay, I surrender. But it's not the way it actually works. I mean, if you know anything about history, um, a lot of times there's stories of people who hold out even though they have absolutely lost. Like, for example, um, I, I was reading a story this week. Uh, there's a Japanese soldier who, after the Second World War, um, even after the surrender by the Japanese to the Americans, I think it was in 1945, uh, he refused to surrender, and he actually continued to fight the war alone in the Philippines for 27 more years. And finally, I think it was in 19... 19- 74, yeah, 29 more years. And finally in 1974, in the Philippines, this guy surrendered to the Allied forces, which didn't even exist anymore. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous. But it's the way we live. Right? I mean, like in the war between God and man, God is one. Very clear winner. He wins. And yet, many of us continue to fight the fights like we're not sure how the outcome is going to be. We refuse to surrender. And this is expressed in all sorts of ways. I mean, it can be expressed in a multitude of ways. I mean, it means just looking at God and saying, like, I don't believe there's a God. Maybe it means looking at God of the Bible and kind of explaining him away in such a way that you can kind of logically, rationally dismiss him and all these kind of serious, devoted followers are, are nothing but a bunch of crazies. Maybe it means that you believe in God, and you might even be part of a church, but when it comes down to it, when nobody's looking, or when you think nobody's looking, um, you live completely different than what you proclaim to be true. Maybe it means that you even, um, in moments that you know what is the right thing in an area of your life that matters the most, like a relationship, or with sex, or with money, or with your job, or, or your priorities, whatever it is, but in the moment 
where you have to make a difficult decision between what you want and declare to be true and what God wants and declares to be true, you kind of just make the same decision Eve did in the garden, say, I don't really think you have my good in mind. I don't think you really know what will make me happy, and I'm going my way instead. All of those patterns of behavior are a refusal to surrender to the victor who is our God. And the really beautiful thing is, it's, like, it's not like a terrible war. It's not like the second, I mean, the terms of agreement are beautiful. They're way better than what you could even think of for your own life. But it's hard. It's messy. It's, it's hard in the areas of life that matter the most. It's hard when we've been living a certain way for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's hard when we've been thinking a certain way in terms of how the world works for 20, 30, 40, 50 years to, like the shepherds, humbly acknowledge that we've gotten it wrong and we need a savior and we surrender and I'll follow the way that you declare to be good and true for my life. I will stop trying to play God because when I play God, I make an absolute mess of my life. But it's hard. It requires a ton of humility. It requires, like the shepherds, not just pretending like you're a great person anymore. Not just pretending like you're an okay person. To pretend like... I need a Savior. I need a God. I need a victor to redeem me. That's the, that's the heart. That's the, the root of the Christian faith. And it's messy. For this culture, it was scandalous, but it's beautiful. And it's real, and it's exactly what we need in the moments that matter the most. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. I hope you sing, um, or else I'll be really sad. Um, we're going to take communion. We're going to baptize. Like All these things, all these things are expressions and reflections that we've done that. Like We have essentially said, God, you're God. We're not. We accept you. We believe you. We worship you. We follow you. And so we'll kind of talk about what does that mean uh, in all its many expressions as we go from here. But let's pray first, and, uh, and then we'll explain God, we thank you so much um, for a story like this one that is read over and over and over again, but that we have the opportunity to read in detail with fresh eyes and we find is far more bizarre and scandalous than we could ever imagine. I pray that we would um, come to a place of true humility where we would acknowledge the reality of who we are. Yeah, like we can find plenty of people that we're better than, but that doesn't mean we're good enough for you. And so I pray that we would finally come to a place where we could humbly acknowledge, like, we need something more than moral improvement or being better than the person that we saw kill somebody on the news. Like, we need salvation. We need redemption. And God, I pray um, that we would treasure that and respond to that and receive that uh, wherever it is that we stand with you. And so God, please move by the power of your spirit in this time response. And uh, we love you and ask these things in your name. Amen.